All right. Um, we are really excited to have Paul White. Funny thing, uh, Brian, Danny, and I began to talk. We'd have coffee every once in a while. Um, it's been a couple years ago. And he kept mentioning this guy, Paul White, Paul White. And I was like, who is Paul White? I've never heard of Paul White. And, uh, and he sent me a couple of podcasts, and I ignored him. <laughs> and, then, and then eventually I was like, okay, I'm going to listen to this guy. I was, I was traveling with work and played the first message, and I was like, oh, my goodness, this is incredible. So let's do another one and another one and another one. And I had to, I had to scroll down because he had these little 15-minute, these, these short ones. And then I was like, I want to hear a long one. I want to hear another long one. So I went down and listened to a bunch of podcasts. And I was like, this is incredible. He's he's hearing and seeing the same things that we're hearing and seeing, and we got to get this guy down here. So last year, we got Paul White down here. He was so gracious to, to meet us down here and to speak to us, um, and we were able to do it again this year, and it was so great. Um, we've talked, we've had several guest speakers here in, over the years, and um, I know even, you know, Mark had had several guest speakers and different things, but for me, it was new, never done this, and so it was really cool. Contact Paul, and I mean, he's like, immediately, he'll call right back and like text right back or message right back. I'm like, this guy's awesome. And, uh, and so we just, just really um, resonated, I guess, you know, we used to talk about sympathetic resonance. And, uh, man, just every time I would listen to his message, I was like, oh, this is so good. This is so good. So we're glad to have him back with us. We're going to have him here tonight and also tomorrow. Um, and he'll be part of our little discussion, too. What, what we're going to do after the service, and I'll briefly describe this, and I won't take up too much time, but we're going to get a few of us up here. What, what we did last year is we met for, at a Mexican restaurant and just had a great discussion. And so what we're going to kind of do is let you guys in on that. It's kind of fun just to kind of discuss things, and there are some questions you guys have asked. And then some things we'll just kind of discuss. It's going to be a lot of fun. I'm looking forward to that as well. We'll do that right after the service. The only thing I do want to say is we will not have childcare because we didn't really plan. I kind of threw this in at the last minute. So we didn't really plan for childcare. So if you have kids, you'll kind of have to, you know, duct tape them to the wall or something or, <laughs> or let them hang out somewhere. But we'll, we'll figure something out, so we'll work it out. But anyway, we're going to have that right after this. We'll have a brief little intermission. We'll talk about the, the questions, and we'll kind of all come up here and talk. It's cool. Cool with that? All right. So without further ado, Mr. Paul White all the way from sunny California. Thanks, buddy. Well, good evening, Pure Grace Church. Good to see you tonight. i got to explain the double mics because everybody gets distracted by that, and then they, they get lost. Uh, I, I record everything I do on the road, so I have a phone recording, so you're going to be captured if you say anything you shouldn't say. That's, that's the whole purpose of that, and that's really just to cover me because I get accused of saying stuff I didn't say. So you record it. You can always go back and see. Uh, I must have done something right because I'm back, and I, I'm so honored to be invited back to Pure Grace Church. It, it, it's a wonderful group of people, and I've been blessed both years to, to get to hang out with some of you. Um, you get called in once. It could have just been a mistake, but you come back, something went right. So that's a really good sign, uh, and I'm so grateful and so thankful for that. I am from, well, I'm currently from sunny Southern California. Uh, my family and I have boxes stacked floor to ceiling in our house because this is moving week. We are relocating to Georgia next weekend. We have spent the last three plus years in California, and it was a season the Lord, I'm not even going to go into why and how that all happened, but uh, it was the season for us at the time it was supposed to happen. And we began the process of praying and asking the Lord where to go next, and he opened a door. We'll be in North Georgia, north of Atlanta. And if it all goes as we feel like the Lord's laying it out, we'll be hosting some midweek meetings, teaching. Uh, we'll record those and post those for those that follow the website, but uh, a little bit more local setting than I've done in a few years. However, 
uh, keeping the weekends open because my call and my mandate at this point in my life is out here in churches and homes and meeting people and, and hopefully pulling grave clothes off of God's resurrected people. And uh, th- that's a, 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 an endless task because we've had a lot of grave clothes put on us of bondage and shame and religion and condemnation and all kinds of things. And so I'm trying to do my part in releasing people into the liberty of what it means to be one of God's children, not what it means to be one of God's workers. You were not born to work. You were not born to praise. That first one, everybody nodded. That second one, everybody put the brakes on. No, you were not born to praise. God had billions of angels. Why would he need to create a man in his likeness and his image so he could have someone else to praise him? If he needed praisers, he just makes another billion angels. You're not going to be able to yell as loud as them anyhow. God did not create you to praise. God created you because he wanted himself in the earth. And he got it. And he lost it. And the Bible's the story of him getting it back. Jesus came to be the last Adam so that he could resurrect in a whole new creation. And that's what you live in. You look around you and say, boy, it sure doesn't look like a new creation. Then go out and show the world what a new creation looks like. And live as a new creation in the kingdom of God. And we're recreating a garden by the power of the Holy Spirit. And and I am thrilled to get to play a teeny tiny role in that transformation on the planet. And so... It is a true honor. My wife, Natasha, would love to have been here, and that was the original plan, and she was going to make this trip this year. And as we got closer and said, that's, that's moving week? That's not going to happen. And so she's back there, and uh, today is my youngest daughter, Lauren's 14th birthday, and I knew that when I booked this meeting, but I knew this was my last possible weekend to do anything for about a month. And so uh, thank God for an understanding young lady who is going to make dad pay over the next couple of days when he gets home. (laughs) And I mean right here. She's already lining up events and meals and the whole, you know, you know how it is. My oldest son, Lucas, is heading off to, to university in the fall. He will be playing baseball in a college in Nebraska. He received a scholarship. And so he's going to the, the cold part of the country. And uh, we're going to the humid part of the country. And so uh, pray for us, all of us. We, we just need prayer, traveling mercies. The Lord has done miracles. And I don't want to spend all of your time recounting the miracles God has done in the last three or four months to make this happen. But it isn't cheap to move your business and your family. Because this ministry is our business. Our business and our family across the country. And God made every bit of it happen. He brought in every penny that's been needed to make it happen. And he did it. His way. I don't even know how to tell you that happened. Just the amazing, miraculous power of the Holy Spirit. And so we're living every day, stepping out of the boat, walking on faith. And uh, we appreciate your prayers as we do that. We're going to be a little bit closer to you. And I hope uh, the next time, if I don't preach my way out of a third invitation, then we'll (laughs) drive to Mobile the next time and hopefully have at least one member of the family in the car with me. Uh, That's putting the cart before the horse, I know. we got to get busy tonight and tomorrow to see where we end up. Uh, in, in this meeting. All right, let's get busy. I'll meet you in First John. You head to that little epistle. A few years ago, I was uh, talking to the Lord in my daily prayer time, and I remember on this particular day, I had taken a drive and had actually dedicated the day to doing all the things I wanted to do. I was pastoring at the time. And those days, as anyone who's ever pastored knows, are few and far between, and they don't exist at all most of the time, getting to do all the things that you want to do in a day. Because you don't ever really get a day off, especially now in the cell phone age, when you've got people got contact with you, they're going to find you. 
And it was one of those rare days where I decided I was going to do all the things I wanted to do that day and leave the phone behind and went out for a drive and was just enjoying myself and as clear as a bell. I won't. I try to be as truthful as possible and never, and I try very hard to be truthful and at least don't lie. And I can't say I heard it audibly, but it was as close as to audible as I needed. I heard the voice of the Holy Spirit in the cab of my truck. Because I was talking to the Lord about what was going on in our life, our church, our ministry, my family, my kids. You know how we do. Just conversing back and forth. That's how I talk to the Lord. I haven't got on my knees to pray in years. Because I talk to the Lord whenever, wherever, and, and he seems to be okay with it. And he speaks back. And on that day, almost audibly, I heard the Holy Spirit say, Paul, I like you. <laughs> it was so stunning that I had to stop in my conversation and listen to see if I had heard something on the radio or if it were just me hoping. It's one of those things where you kind of went, well, wouldn't it be nice if the Holy Spirit said that or God would communicate? But I waited. There was this long, awkward pause in the cab of my vehicle as I waited and felt the confirmation of the Spirit in my heart. As the Holy Spirit spoke to me, I like you. Now, I'm a word guy. I, I love good quips and principles and thoughts, but I need scripture. I need something behind that to underpin this. I mean, you can't just get up and tell people God likes them because there's not a verse that says, guess what? God likes you. At least I couldn't find it. And so I didn't have it, and I shared it, and I've shared it, and those of you who've listened to our deep stuff or a lot of our stuff, you've probably heard me say it once or twice, but I never really preached it because it would always be like a throw-in at the end of a message on the love of God or maybe to try to help somebody in personal counseling. I might say, you know, one time I felt like the Lord told me he liked me, and I just thought I'd share that with you. And I would throw that in, but couldn't really settle in my spirit. And so I went on a journey. I want to recount a little bit of that journey for you tonight in the Scripture, if I could. And show you where I believe the Holy Spirit has taken me. Because, And I'll say it. I'll, I'll go ahead and throw it out there for you now so that you'll know where we end up. Then what's the point of preaching, right? Well, because we need to underpin it. But my, my blanket statement is I believe that God likes you. I know that God loves you. I believe that God likes you. And what people immediately snap back with is, well... He can't like all the stuff I've been doing. And that almost is a conversation killer for most of us. Enough to just go ahead and end it right there. Because obviously he doesn't like all the stuff I've been doing. So how could we have an intelligent conversation about God liking me? Because I've done this and this and this or thought this or went there or whatever. And so most of us just leave it alone. But I've found that the power of like in our culture has actually trumped the power of love. Because we blanket love everybody, it's kind of what we do, we're Christians, right? At least we say it, <laughs> whether we do it or not, maybe that's a whole different thing. We, I used to even grow up saying this, you know, I, I, I got to love you because I want to go to heaven. Because <laughs> I was a good church kid, so I'd already learned the theology behind love. You know, if you want to go to heaven, you're going to have to love people. So I might say, you know, I, we, we have to love them because you want to go be with Jesus. So love is a requirement. And so love, love but love's gotten a little bit cheap because we love pizza. And we love ice cream. And we love going on vacation. 
And I love your new shoes. I mean, we sling that around until it... And I know we know the difference, surely. I mean, you say to your spouse, I love you, right after you said, I'd love, I love pizza, they surely don't think it's the same love. And if they do, you need to get some marriage counseling. Because <laughs> you've got some problems that you might want to work through. Because there needs, it needs to be a little deeper than your love for your favorite food. That's a whole different kind of love. And maybe that's just a weakness of the English language. Maybe we're just not really that good at it. And maybe that's why we put so much power in like. We've got that Facebook like button, right? You see something you like, you ought to like it. And if, you, if people don't put enough likes on it, it destroys our self-esteem. I thought that was a really good picture of me. And yet only 12 people liked it. I got 1,500 friends. Why did only 12 of them like my picture? It becomes an issue for us. Let's establish, first and foremost, the one that I think everybody knows, is that God loves you and that God is love. Look at 1 John chapter 4. For what is the most obvious moment, this is an agape fest right here in 1 John 4. This is... This is the Greek explosion of God's love. I'll explain what I mean by agape fest in a moment. First John chapter 4, verse 7. Beloved, let us love one another, for love is of God, and everyone who loves is born of God and knows God. He who does not love does not know God, for God is love. If you've never taken the moment to just stare at that for a moment, it might be worth underlining, highlighting, God is love. This is a definitive description of what God is. We don't get much of this in the Bible. We get God's attributes. We don't get a whole lot of what God is. God is merciful. God is gracious. God is loving. God is patient. God is long-suffering. God is kind toward us. God is the closest maybe we get. God is holy. Be thou holy as God is holy. Well, that one bothers us because that denotes some sort of outward action. I don't think that ought to bother us at all. Be thou holy as God is holy. God is holy from the inside out. So what the Bible's telling you is be holy from the inside out. God's not holy in what he does. He's holy in who he is. But when God wants to describe, when the Bible wants to describe what God is, God is love. Now, I came up in a church culture that if you had got up and preached a sermon entitled it, God is love, I would have probably spent a few minutes at least heading to the restroom to take a break because I didn't need to hear that. That's elementary stuff. How am I going to grow hearing about God is love? In fact, when I, got, when I came into ministry and I came up in a very Pentecostal heritage, no grace, well, grace for sinners and then get busy after you get saved. That was kind of my theology. In fact, I was pretty jealous of sinners because they got grace. <laughs> I remember sitting through many invitations where under my breath I said, I wish I could feel what they feel. Watch them get up off that altar crying and everybody hugging them. I also, there was another voice in the back of my head said, they don't know what they just signed up for. <laughs> Promise. They don't know what they just signed up for. And uh, but, so the revolution of grace began to turn and change a lot of that. But, but if, you, if you got Paul back there... That version, uh, I would have said, if you preach the love of God, you're just going to make people lazy and you're going to make them spiritually fat. Because if, if people just know God loves them, there's no personal responsibility is going to come out of that. There's going to be no real effort towards holiness. They're not going to go out and change the world. They're not going to go out and witness. Why would they? They know God loves them anyway. So I had a version of God's love that was always earned, that you paid for through effort, through self, through performance, and then you got the, you, the love of God, hopefully. 
you received the love of God. There was no real guarantees because the only true guarantee you had in Christianity was that when your heart stopped beating and you drew your last breath, all fingers crossed, you made it in. But you didn't really know till you got there. I mean it. Almost everybody, almost the entire ministry culture I came up with, when you went to their deathbed, the announcement they made to the room was, I hope I've done enough to get home. And that was the preacher. So it was very difficult for the guy in the pew. I mean, how are we going to do it? At least that guy preached. I mean, Randy, what wasn't even preaching. How am I going to make it home? And so the love of God, very difficult, very tough, very confusing. Let's read on. He, he who does not love does not know God, for God is love. In this, the love of God, verse 9, was manifested toward us that God has sent his only begotten son into the world that we might live through him. Notice that God sent Jesus into the world so that we might live, not God sent Jesus into the world so that we might have confidence when we die. The cheapened version of Christianity that has hurt us for nearly two millennium is that we have a Christianity that puts the greatest reward out in front of us instead of the greatest reward inside of us. So if you keep telling people that God sent Jesus so you can go to heaven when you die, you're ripping them off of having heaven when they're alive. And having heaven when you're alive is the great part about being one of the sons of God because you have resurrected reality. So Jesus did not die for you so that you could live for him in heaven, though that's part of it. Jesus died so that you could live through him now. In this is love. Not that we loved God, but that he loved us. Here's the very definition of love. has nothing to do with me. It's not about me loving God and how much I can do for God. The very definition of love is that God loved us and sent his son to be the propitiation Or if you were to filter this word through the Septuagint Old Testament where the Hebrew writers of the Old Testament or the the early... uh, B.C. writers of what would eventually be the New Testament took the Hebrew Old Testament and wrote it into Greek. That Septuagint takes the word mercy seat for propitiation. So you can transfer those if you need a better idea. Remember what the mercy seat is? That blood-covered seat on the back of the Ark, or on the top of the Ark of the Covenant, the back of the temple where only the high priest got to go and only once, only on the Day of Atonement. And now Jesus has torn down that curtain so that you and I can go boldly in and so that we can worship at the mercy seat. So if you insert mercy seat there, look at 10 again. In this is love, not that we love God, but God loved us and sent Jesus to be the mercy seat on which our sins are now covered. Beloved, if God so loved us, we also ought to love one another. And there's a good ought. And don't ever let grace keep you from the oughts of the New Testament. Okay? I, I, get, I probably get more strange looks and crossed eyes in the grace community for ever mentioning the oughts than anything I ever mention at all. Because we hate the oughts. They sound too much like work. And work is the four-letter word of the grace church. It is a four-letter word. You caught it. It is an actual four-letter word. Why is it such a bad word? Because we see it as the antithesis to God's grace. God's grace works when I don't, so that I don't have to work. But then Paul says, you were created for good works. What are those supposed to come out of? Maybe grace? Maybe as grace goes to work, so do you. Not to help grace, but because grace is going to work. And with grace going to work, you ought to start doing some stuff. <laughs> and one of those things, according to 1 John, if you want to understand the love of God, is because Jesus is your mercy seat and all of your sins have been covered and grace is alive in you, you ought to love each other. And so then love becomes an outward expression. And then it gets to, to young, you know, 10-year-old Paul White who says to somebody, I got to love you, I want to go to heaven. <laughs> right? 
That's where I ended up with that doctrine. Is I gotta love you. I want to go to heaven. Well, what I told you when we went into this text is, is this is an agape explosion. And I think most of us are pretty familiar, even if we don't really understand Greek, even if we don't really understand Hebrew. Most of us have got agape as part of our vernacular. It's so popular, it's kind of slipped into English. You know, I mean, even people that are non-churched kind of pick up that it's some word of great affection. I think one of the things that we have done in our and and we're not Greek, and we don't speak Greek, and we certainly don't speak classic Greek, and we don't understand what the Greek was sometimes trying to do, and I don't know if I'm in a house that demands one translation over the other, but the reality is, is none of them have really nailed it because we're in English and they're in Greek. We're doing the best we can do, and even that's not very w- well done, okay? So we, we go back to these words, but what happens is they start to, we start to filter them even through our own desire for what they might mean. I think agape has been a pretty abused word in the church because what we've done with agape is we've went, that's the God kind of love and it's unconditional. And yet if you go through all of your Greek lexicons and you dig in and try to get all the definitions you can get out of agape, it's tough to find the ancients writing unconditional in one of the definitions. Now I'm not up here to try to present to you that God loves you for a spell and then stops. And I think that's why we started calling it unconditional is because we know God loves us. And if he loves you when you're a sinner, how can he not love you when you're a saint? And so we looked at that and went, well, that's the God kind of love. But not really, at least not in the way that the Bible writers were translating it. It's not only the God kind of love. In fact, it's not as popular as you think it is. I mean, Matthew uses it once. Luke uses it once. Mark never uses it at all. The book of Acts, where the early church is exploding, no agape. James never used it. It's not on every corner of every verse of the New Testament. Now, that doesn't mean it's not important, and that doesn't mean it's not valuable, and it certainly doesn't mean we don't need to understand it, but we might need to take a step back for a moment and realize that agape is not just God's kind of love, this great quality of love that you can never really have. It's a deep, affectionate passion that borders on the romantic, and at times in Bible literature is straight up romantic. Do you know agape doesn't appear outside of Bible literature in the classic Greek world? So it was a word that the New Testament Greek writers came up with. I'm not real sure how they can do that, but they came up with a word to describe a love that's indescribable because isn't that God's love for you? I mean, a love that can't be described, and then they used it in ways that weren't godly. For instance, did you know the first time we find the word agape in the Septuagint? Now, again, let me stop and make sure we understand what Septuagint is. Uh, Septuagint is 70, I'm not going to get into all the the deep Bible seminary stuff, but when you look this thing up, it's going to be the LXX, okay? And what LXX is, is what's the Roman numeral for 70? LXX, that's how complicated that is. It's their 70 elders that took the Hebrew Torah and translated it into common Greek, And I'm sure that people held signs up outside of the room when they were translating Hebrew into Greek and said, don't touch God's holy word. (laughs) Can you imagine? Because today, wow, you know, don't tell what you think a verse means because we don't want to know what you think it means. We want to know what God thinks it means. Which my thought to that is always, then why do we need teachers? 
Why do we need preachers? If not to say, here's what I believe this verse is trying to say. Now, what do you believe this verse is trying to say? So as they take the Old Testament, they put it into Greek, they start dropping in Greek words, and they've made one up, remember? Agape, a, a love you can't describe. You know the first place they use it? Song of Solomon. And they use it like crazy. Now, just to give you an idea how off the wall that is, you were not allowed to read the Song of Solomon in the time of Christ until you were 30. It's really a good chance that Jesus never read it. Not Jesus in the earthly form would have, had, would have sat down and... Un- you didn't go to synagogue and then unscrolls the Song of Solomon. <laughs> it was so dirty, it was pornographic. You weren't allowed to have it until you were at a certain age. Now, everybody in here has just scrolled to the Song of Solomon. <laughs> to see if they can get some church-approved, church-sanctioned sex literature. (laughs) Well, check it out at home because it's got some of that. And get a different translation and it gets even crazier. (laughs) Remarkably, when they took the Septuagint Hebrew to Greek, they use agape. And it's nothing to do with Israel loving God. And I know we love to say Song of Solomon is a love story between between Jesus and his lover, we interpolated that into the Song of Solomon because it was written It was written by a dude named Solomon who's talking about a woman he loves and the woman's talking back to him and it's like a script back and forth. She says this about him, he says this about her. Every now and then her friends say this about him and every now and then she says this to her friends about him. It's like a big soap opera. Just this huge romance going on in the Song of Solomon. And when the writers saw it, they thought, that's erotic, that's deep, that's affectionate, that's agape. Okay? So that's agape. That's, that's, and I think we're okay in saying, well, that's God kind of love. We don't like that when we think too sensual, because surely God's not that way. Who do you think created it? But <laughs> God had something in mind when he gave Adam Eve. There you go. Keep that, just, just, you ever thought about the first commands God gives in the garden? Be fruitful and multiply. Eat everything that's in the garden. Be fruitful and multiply. Eat lots of food and have lots of sex. God's first two commands in the garden of Eden. Eat lots of food and have lots of sex. And now we wind towards the end of my second and final appearance at Pure Grace Church. If it's the nature of God, deep, passionate, affectionate, needs its own word, then when we see it explode in a place like 1 John 4, we're not shocked. God loves you like that. God wants you to love your neighbor like that. God wants you to reciprocate that kind of love. And that's good. And, but it's holy because agape belongs in the church and it belongs in the Bible and you don't find it just lying out there in other literature and so it becomes this holy kind of love and when we think of God loving us, we think of it in those terms. We think of it in that, that understanding. We filter it through that knowledge. In this is love, not that we loved God, 10, but that he loved us and he sent his son to be the propitiation for our sins. Beloved, if God so loved us, then we ought to love God one another and we ought to love one another becomes the mantra of the church and the way we govern ourselves in the world and how we treat our neighbor but we don't think that loving our brother means we have to like them 
Because deep down in our heart of hearts, we reserve like for the people we really love. Okay? Which tells me, in our heart of hearts, like is bigger than just agape. Now, you've, we've all tried to be spiritual and say agape is the big love. That's God's love. But yet, that's the love you're supposed to show your enemy. That's the love you're supposed to show he who persecutes you. That's the love you're supposed to have for the unlovable. For the guy that smacks you in the face and you turn for him the other cheek. For the guy that requests you to take the load a mile and you're told to take it too. That's the love you give to him. But the like you save. You save that for your neighbor that you do really love. Or your kids. Or your spouse. Or the people in your church. And a lot of times that like is very conditional and it's very temporary and it's very much how they treat me. If you don't think so, watch the people that leave your church and how they treat you when they're gone and how you treat them and how you realize there's not as much to talk about anymore as there was before. Maybe that love wasn't as deep a like as we thought it was. But I say we reserve that like, we save that like, we put great emphasis, greater emphasis even, on that like. So when I spoke to that voice in the cab of my truck that said, Paul, I like you, and I needed help, I needed some sort of underpinning, I needed some sort of assurance and confidence that maybe he really did like me, one of the things I felt the Lord begin to place into my heart was that, son, you value, you and your culture, the culture around you, value so highly like that it might be time to change the way you talk to the people about me loving them. Because a lot of people will tell you God loves everybody, but they have no revelation, A, that God loves them, and B, that God likes them. And so blanket love isn't working. God loves everybody. And we go, I know God loves everybody, but you don't know what I've done. What's their, what are they saying? Oh, God loves me. But God's so displeased with me that his love doesn't matter right now. He surely doesn't like the stuff I'm up to. He can't like what I'm doing. And like is so temporary. Academy Awards, one of the most famous like moments. 1985 Academy Awards. Sally Field, nominated Best Actress, Places of the Heart. She wins her second Academy Award. She comes up to the platform. She does what Academy Award recipients do. Thank mom and dad and, you know, Bill and Tom and whoever. And then she says, I, I won another one, but it didn't really sink in. I, I didn't really get the impact or the import of what it meant the first time I won. But I get it now, and it means so much to me. And she said... I won it before, but I didn't really know if you liked me or not. But now I know you like me. In this moment, you like me. And the whole place, camera, go watch it on YouTube. Not, not right now. But you, you always have to say that anymore. So the camera pans, and there's people crying in the crowd. You know why? Because in the Hollywood culture, and I don't live too far from there, and I've actually seen a little bit of this, the Hollywood culture, there's such this 
earnest, this oozing need to be loved. I need the audience to love me and to want me and I'll do whatever I have to do. I'll starve my body to death to look like I did when I was 20 until I'm dead so that you will always love me and you won't badmouth me and you won't cut me down and you'll keep giving me roles and you'll like me. And it has nothing to do with love because love doesn't put butts in the seats, but like does. I like that guy. I'll go watch his movie. And she got it. She, she, she got it. Most of us interpret that moment as, you like me, you really like me. She actually says, and this to me is so poignant. This stabs you in the heart. You like me right now. You like me. Did you catch that middle phrase? Why'd she say right now? Because you know it might not last. Right now, you like me. She never won another one. I don't know if she should have, but... It was almost prophetic. Like, you like me right now. You like me. What do I need to do to keep you liking me? Now, what, if any, biblical basis do we have? Because I've I've tried to perhaps even overstate my foundation of the love of God, okay? I understand that we took more time than is needed, but we're also not the only people that will see and hear this, and I've trained myself of that. Over the years, there will be someone that clicks on a message titled God likes you and they need 15 minutes of God loves them first because they're just waiting to pick it apart anyway. Okay. And since the average YouTube watcher isn't sticking around 20 minutes, my one hour sermons need to do something at the top to get you to the back end of that. Okay. And so. The foundation of God's love. What might we have in Scripture? Well, go, go with me to John, and I'm, I know we're in 1 John, but I want you to go to the Gospel of John, and I want to use one that I'm pretty sure has been preached in this house. And I don't know for positive, because I haven't heard every sermon that's been preached in this house, but what little I know about Pastor Justin and what I've heard out of Pastor Mark and the fact that the word comes out the way that it does, I've got a feeling this has been dealt with. This encounter between Jesus and Peter on the beach following Jesus' resurrection. And I think probably a lot of you know where I'm going with this. So I'm not actually going to spend too much time there. Let's jump right into the reading. Jesus has made breakfast for Peter. And he and Peter are looking across the fire at one another. This is the second charcoal fire in 72 hours for Peter. And the last one wasn't very good. You remember what the last one was. Peter warms his hand over a charcoal fire and a woman says to him, aren't you one of his followers? And Peter curses her and says, I don't know who you're talking about. And then less than about four days later, here's Peter sitting across the charcoal fire and Jesus is offering him fish. And oh man, that's got to be, that's got to hurt. This, this one whom he betrayed, not betrayed, but for all intents and purposes, denied. And they look across the fire at one another And when they had eaten breakfast, verse 15, John 21, 15, Jesus said to Simon Peter, Simon, son of Jonah, do you love me more than these? And this is, I'm sure we all know this, but let's make a real quick Greek study. Jesus says agape, that deep affection. A lot of us say unconditional or or God kind of love. That's what we've been covering for a few minutes. Jesus says, do you love me? And he said to him, yes, Lord, you know that I love you. And he said to him, feed my lambs. And of course, the word that Peter fires back at Jesus is not agape. It's the Greek word phileo, the root of which we get the city, Philadelphia, the city of brotherly love. Why do we get 
Phileo leads us to Philadelphia, brotherly love. If you've ever been to Philadelphia, nothing could be further from the truth. No, I should not. Just joking. It's, that's, well, that might be true. I don't know. But Peter fires phileo back at him. Quick, quick Greek study, what's phileo mean? Is it just brotherly love? Well, yeah, kind of, yeah. I mean, it actually is one of the Greek definitions of phileo, to love a brother. Um, but it's also, it's a little bit all over the map. Now, stay with me here. Because phileo is one of those words that I think until they came up with agape, phileo was the best they had because it kind of ran the gamut. I mean, phileo was brotherly love. It's, the, it's how you treated the people around you and what you were supposed to say about them and do to them and think of them. But it was also a little deeper. It was a little sloppy. Whenever Judas comes into the garden and says to the soldiers, the one whom I kiss, that's the one whom you should arrest. The Bible says, and he leaned forward and kissed Jesus on the cheek, and the Greek uses phileo. He leaned forward and he phileo on the cheek Jesus. And so there's this proximity, an intimacy. You don't go around just kissing everybody you agape love. Do you? No. So there's something different going on. So I looked a little deeper into phileo. You don't have to go very far into the lexicon to find two words. To like. To like. Now, some of us like to church it up and say to be fond of. But what's to be fond of mean? To like. I like the guy. And that's the Greek word phileo. So here's what happens across the charcoal fire. Jesus says to Peter, Peter, do you love me? Are you strongly affectionate for me? And Peter says, I like you a lot. And so Jesus says, feed my lambs. And he said to him a second time, Simon, son of Jonah, do you agape me? And he said to him, yes, Lord, you know that I phileo you. And he said to him, tend my sheep. And he said to him the third time, Simon, son of Jonah, do you phileo me? And there's the Greek change. We don't see that in the English because we're reading it as love every time. But Jesus flips the script, so to speak, and says, Peter, do you like me? And Peter was grieved because he said to him the third time, do you like me? And he said to him, Lord, you know all things. You know I like you. Jesus said, feed my sheep. Let's make sure we review them real quick. Peter, do you agape me? Do you have the God kind of affection for me? And Peter goes, I like you a lot. Jesus says, feed my lambs. Peter, do you, do you agape me? Do you have a God kind of love for me? And Peter goes, you know I like you. And Jesus said, feed my sheep. And Jesus says, Peter, do you like me? And Peter says, yes, Lord, you know I like you. And Jesus said, feed my sheep. And I spent my whole life preaching that Jesus puts just a little bit of shame and condemnation on Peter on the other side of the charcoal fire. Because Jesus is saying to Peter, so you just like me. And the Holy Spirit began to speak to my heart. You see, I don't believe that Peter was feeling shame. I think what hurt us right there is in that last verse we read together, it says, and Peter was grieved because Jesus had asked him the third time, do you like me? I think we read into that when we found out the Greek and when agape phileo, phileo agape, I think we read into that and said, Peter was upset because Jesus switched it to like. And now Peter feels like he should say, I agape you. Then why doesn't he? 
Peter doesn't end the conversation with, you know what, I really do agape you. That would have made it, we would have tied a nice little bow on that sermon. We would have got to the end of it and said, see, you're not just supposed to like him. Bless God, you're supposed to love him. Peter changed his mind when he had a revelation across a charcoal fire. It'll preach, but it's wrong. I mean, why'd that ever stop us? You know, there's a lot of, there's, there's a lot of stuff we preach that was wrong. And so, do you agape me, Lord? I like it. I don't think Peter was being insulting. I think Peter was trying to tell him, I really like you. Maybe it sounded like this. And please forgive me, we don't get inflection in the Bible, so sometimes we've got to make it up ourselves. Okay? Peter, do you love me? Oh, Jesus. Man, I like you. I like you a lot. You... You took me off of a boat, and you changed my life. I, I, I followed you all this time because I love hanging out with you. I think Jesus smiles and says, feed my lambs, and they eat some more fish. And Jesus says, Peter, do you love me? I'd like to hear it again. And Peter says, yes, Lord, I I like you, man. I, I'm so fond of you. you. You spoke into my life and you healed my family. I mean, you came into my house and you touched us and you changed me and my brothers and you prospered my family. And Jesus says, you're qualified. Go, go feed my sheep. And they ate some more fish. And Jesus, with a big smile on his face, said, Peter, you like me, don't you? And Peter's grieved that he can't get it through to Jesus. Yes, Lord. How many times do I have to tell you? I like you. And Jesus says, take that equipment. The knowledge that you love me to the point of like. And use that to feed my sheep. Because what you're going to be tempted to do is feed my sheep out of guilt. Because Four days ago over a charcoal fire, you denied me. But don't you ever forget, you like me. And that's what, how I want you to teach my kids. As a man who likes me. Now when the Holy Spirit began to unveil that in my heart, I could stand in front of crowds I don't know and minister not out of a sense of I've got to preach or I'll go to hell because that's how I went into ministry for a while. You, i got to do this. I went in way too young. 15 years old, I'm preaching. How do you know that was too young? Because Jesus knew who he was at 12 and didn't preach another sermon until he was 30. So who do I think I am? I mean, I had a lot I should have learned that I had to learn the hard way in the school of hard knocks. Which I guess that's okay too. That's what we do. But there was a lot of things I could have been able to glean had I been patient and just allowed the Holy Spirit to do all the work that he wanted to do in me. But aren't you glad the Lord doesn't abandon us even though we often make some stupid decisions and he just continues to bless so for years, I looked at God's people and smacked them around out of a sense of moral obligation. And then I realized how much he liked me and how much I liked him. And then getting up in front of God's people was better because no, long, no longer did I have to minister to God's people from a sense of shame and condemnation. I could minister to God's people as a man who liked the guy he was talking about. Who liked him so much, he thought if he did it just right, you might like him too. 
And that really is what drives me and motivates and pulls me forward is to go, I like him so much and he likes me so much. And I think if I could get a few minutes of your time and I could say it just right and I could put it just the way you need to hear it, I think you might walk out liking him too. And wouldn't that be worth getting on an airplane and flying to a city and staying in people's homes and living in hotels out of luggage? And wouldn't it be worth it if you could get someone else to like him but to know that he liked them? And wouldn't that be worth this journey? And I have answered that yes. So I keep moving forward. Because as you fill your belly with the fish at the charcoal fire, you walk back out into the world, you're going to need equipment if you're going to tell someone about what's happened in you. And Peter's equipment was, I like him, and I love him, and I like being around him. And I think if you listened, you'd like being around him because he's a good guy. Now, once I got that revelation, then my heart began to settle because that let me know my Jesus wouldn't be condemning Peter on the other side of the fire. Oh, you only like me, Peter? Because there's none of that there. In fact, when the conversation ends, Jesus talks next and says, when you get old, they're going to carry you away. And, and, but some of you aren't going to taste death. To, you know the story. And then John walks up and Peter who's a little bit, pops off the mouth a time or two and goes, what about this guy? Is he going to live to see you return? And Jesus goes, don't worry about anybody else. It's just about you and me. That's a good piece of advice. (laughs) Don't worry about Buddy and me. You just talk about you and me. And that'll help. And I think it helps Peter. In fact, I know it does because he closes his second letter with, our brother Paul writes many things that are hard to understand. But that's as far as he goes with it. He don't cut him down. He don't worry about him. He just goes, you deal with it. That's what I learned from Jesus. Once I had the John 21 agape phileo and realized that God wasn't dissing phileo, then I could go on a hunt and go see if God ever said it about me because that's what I needed, a moment where maybe God said it about me. Go to John chapter 16. John chapter 16, let's start in verse 25. These things I have spoken to you in figurative language. Now, I'm going to be honest with you, church. Whenever I began to really explore these passages that I'm about to read to you, I really overlooked this first part of this. I, I mean, I flew right past it because when you go on a hunt looking for something, you want to mine out that treasure, and sometimes you walk right past some good stuff. And I missed this at first, so I want to slow down for a moment and make sure we understand how Jesus introduces this. The things that I've been saying to you, I've said them in figurative language, but the time is coming when I will no longer speak to you in figurative language, but I will tell you plainly about the Father. And in that day you will ask in my name, and I do not say to you that I shall pray to the Father for you, because the Father himself loves you because you've loved me and have believed that I came forth from God. I came forth from the Father, have come into the world. Again, I leave the world and I go see the Father. Watch 29. His disciples said to him, see, now you're speaking plainly and not using figures of speech. Now, whatever Jesus just said, we, I know we ran past it really fast, but whatever he just said, that worked. They missed everything he's ever been saying. Jesus opens the conversation with, guys, I know you're getting tired of it because I always speak to you in figurative language. What's figurative language? Parables. I'm always telling stories about guys throwing seed and planting Trees and catching fish and, you know, separating goats and, and building houses and fowls of the air and branches. And I know you're getting frustrated. I can see the look in your eyes because you're going, what in the world? Why another story about a tree? <laughs> There's not a farmer among us. <laughs> Maybe there was. And they always look over and go, do you need another story? 
Sometimes they were so confused, Jesus would, they would actually come into the house. Remember the parable of the sower? And they come into the house and go, will you please explain that to us? Because we don't have any idea what you're talking about. Dude goes out and throws seed, and some of it gets ate up by thorns, and some of it gets ate up by thistles, and some of it gets brushed off the road. And Jesus goes, this is this, this is this, this is this, 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 this. Just point after point after. And I've read all of his parables. And went, Boy, I wish he'd have done that with, you know, that one. <laughs> How about doing the rich man and Lazarus that way, Jesus? <laughs> you know? But he doesn't. And he even opens in John 16. He goes, I've been talking to you in figurative language. Time's coming. I'm not going to talk to you in figurative language anymore. In fact, the time's going to come. I'm not even going to talk to the Father for you. You're going to do it all by yourself. And do you know why you're going to do it all by yourself? Let's go back and plug our word in. Watch 26. In that day, you'll ask my name. And I don't say to you that I shall pray to the Father for you. Because the Father himself likes you. Because you like me. And have believed that I come forth from God. And that did it. When the disciples heard that, they went, see, that's plain language. Why plain language? Because, man, we can dig like. Love's blanket, love's universal. God loves sinners, and you expect me to get excited about you loving me? I mean, that guy's a dog. Like? Ooh. I can sink my teeth into like. I can do something with like. Like means you've been watching. You see, like means you've been paying attention and you're not offended yet. Like means you've seen who I am at home, and you're still there. Like means you've invested time in me. Like means you tell your friends about me. Because we don't tell people about people we don't like. But we stand up for the ones we do. You see, what Greek word is used in this passage, John 16, 27, is phileo. You, my father likes you. And he likes you because you like me. And man, that's a typical dad-son response. See, my son's got friends. And I don't know any of them, really. I mean, they play ball with him. They come over to our house. They seem like decent kids. But let me tell you something. My like for them stretches as far as they like my son. That's a fact. The moment you stop liking my son, don't think you and I are friends. You're out of here. You don't just come walking in here like nothing's happened. I heard the story of what you said this week to him. You can get your butt back in a truck and go to your own house. That's how I want a parent. <laughs> right? And, and have. But, <laughs> no, I haven't. I wouldn't do that. But the, this, my, my affection for Lucas and Lauren, my kids, and then my affection for the neighbor kid or the ball player, the teammate or the classmate, it's always going to be filtered through my affection for my kid first. I mean, I'm not even talking to that kid unless it's filtered through the fact that they've been talking to my kid and then we've been in the room together, right? So the, I like what Jesus does here, not just in the like capacity. God likes you. I like how he filters it through himself. My father likes you because you like me. This is setting up Peter at the charcoal fire five chapters later. My father likes people like me. Peter, do you love me? I like you. Why does Peter say I like you? It's not just affectionate, but man, if daddy loves people that like you, I like you. Sign me up. Now, I don't believe in the vehicle that day that the Lord said to me, Paul, I like you just because I preach or just because I love Jesus. But I do believe that the like is not just a personal revelation. I had someone ask our ministry that and say, was that God likes you thing a personal revelation or can you prove that in the scripture? I believe you can see that in the scripture, that God does indeed like you, that God is affectionate towards you, that God would like to hang out with you. God 
appreciates and values who you are. You are fearfully and wonderfully made. This is a message that will hit our website in a few weeks. I just did in California where we take that Old Testament scripture, you are fearfully and wonderfully made, and we dig it out in the Hebrew. And what fearfully and wonderfully made means is you are awesome and amazing. Those are the two closest English words to fearfully and wonderfully. You are awesome and amazingly made. It doesn't mean you're awesome and amazing. It means you were made in an awesome and amazing manner. And if you'll know that, you'll live up to that. Because a lot of people don't realize that they were made in an awesome and amazing manner. They're living below their standard. And so if God likes, God loves you and then God likes you, then what does that bring out of you? What does that do to you? Well, the first pushback is always, oh yeah, God loves us, but God doesn't really like all the stuff we've been doing. And I might shock you right here. I agree. I don't think he does like all the stuff we've been doing. And I'm going to tell you why. Because the Bible's about family. And I don't like all the stuff my son does. And I don't like all the stuff my daughter does. And I think if you say you do, I think you're lying. I think you're trying to be super spiritual and really holy for all the people sitting near you and acting like you like all the stuff your kids do. Don't lie. You don't like all the stuff your kids do. That's what it means to be a parent. You're not going to like all the stuff your kids do. Do you not love them? Oh, yeah, you love them. Do you like them? Sure. Sure. I don't like all the stuff they do. That's a whole different question. I Man, I don't like some of the stunts he pulls. I don't like some of the decisions she makes. But I like her a lot. I like her enough I'd introduce you guys if she was here. If my son were here, I would introduce you. I'm not going to introduce you to people I don't like. Hey, Mark, here's a dude I can't stand. I'd like to introduce you to him. So that maybe your life could be a living hell as well. Give me a call. Tell me how it goes over coffee. No, you don't, I wouldn't do that. You only introduce people that you like. I want my friends to like my friends. You get excited introducing my friends to my friends, but it's that, that passion and that love for them that is, I say, is agape. I don't, I don't know for sure what agape looks like, but I know God loves me passionately, and so that for me is agape, and I feel that way about my kids, and I know God likes me because the scripture says he does, and I know what it means to like my kids, but I also know what it means, I don't know what it means to not love them, and I don't know what it means to not like them, but I do know what it means to not like some of the stuff they're doing, and that lets me know that maybe, just maybe, my father doesn't like some of the junk I'm doing either. And I think we've got to stop being scared in the grace community. We've got to stop being scared to say that for fear that people are going to think we're back into works. There was nothing that was just proclaimed to you that should make you think your righteousness is based on your performance. Your righteousness is never based on your performance. No more than my son's actions make him my son. He is my son. If he acts a fool, he is my son acting a fool. But he's mine, and he'll never not be mine. And I love him as if he were not acting a fool. But I don't always like the foolish things he's doing. And I wish he wouldn't do them. Right? And that was us, too, with our parents. Good God, was it ever. For all of us. And you should have amen that, you liar. How do we cultivate like? We spend time together. We play together. We grow together. We know one another's favorite foods and what songs they like. 
We hang out with them enough that we figure that stuff out. You notice how when you meet somebody for the first time, you haven't been around them very much, or maybe it's not even the first time, but you don't spend a lot of time around them. Silence is awkward and painful. You work very, very hard to keep silence from happening. And so you hang out with someone with whom you're not very close, and you make sure to always have a go-to something. Ask a question. Wait for a response. That's why we talk about weather. We don't need to talk about the weather. They got an app on their phone. They just walked from their car to the building, and yet it's a good 30-second filler at any time. Has it rained lately? No. You think it's going to? Boy, we need it. Sure would be nice, wouldn't it? How much rain did you get last week at your place? All right. No, we're not even going to remember. It's unimportant chit-chat. You don't do that with your brother. You don't do that with your wife. You don't walk into your wife. You got home from work. You go, boy, we we need some rain, don't we? Yes, honey, we need some rain. I was telling the girls at the salon how much rain we needed. You know, remember when we were younger and it rained that whole week? Yeah, you know what? My dad told me about this time. We don't do that stuff. (laughs) Now, why not? I like you. I'm not scared of silence. With people I like, silence is beautiful. I was driving down the road with a pastor recently, and I had been to his church two or three times. We've conversed, talked on the phone, text back and forth, gotten pretty close. And I was in the passenger seat, and he was driving, and we went down the road for a stretch. I wasn't thinking anything about it. My mind, I don't even know where my mind was. I was looking around, and he said, hey, I think what just happened between us is such a good sign that you and I have become good friends. And I had to ask, what just happened? (laughs) We hadn't talked for like five minutes. And he said, I just realized we haven't talked in five minutes, and it didn't feel weird. Well, it felt so opposite of weird to me that I didn't even know what he was talking about. And I said, you know what? You're right. I think our relationship just went to another level. (laughs) Now, if you just keep going with that, it gets bizarre. All right? It just starts getting weird. We don't have to keep talking about our relationship. You know, we're just friends. But what happens is as we, we grow, we, we play. And I, when I say play, I don't mean, you know, jumping jacks and running around pushing trucks in the dirt. But play is the interaction of community. Okay? That's why in theater, you are players. You play a role, but you interact not just with one another on stage, but you interact with the audience, with the writer of the script, with everything that came before it, and you try to influence the the feelings. What are you doing, really? You're communicating. You're growing together. And so that's what play is all about. We need more of that in our relationships. We need more of that in our churches. We need more of that in our marriages. I see a lot of marriages in trouble, even in grace, and it's because we have spouses that don't play with one another. And what I mean by that, they don't play anywhere, much less in the bedroom, and they need to, because if they did, they could channel their lust in the right direction. I, think, I don't think we're talking enough about things like pornography. I don't think we're talking enough, and I think we think it's legalism. So I think we're leaving it alone. I also think we're embarrassed. I don't think we're talking enough about our relationships. I think it's because we've substituted love outward towards the world. In some, in some cases, we've even thought that that was enough. We didn't have to like each other. We just had to love sinners. And some of us are even in relationships in which it's all about loving the people on the outside while not even liking the people you go home to. I've watched that destroy ministries. People that have a great capacity to love the sheep in their church and can't like their spouse. That's a problem. 
That's where something's been sacrificed at the altar of love, and the thing that's been sacrificed is like. So yeah, we should be playing with one another. And should, should that draw us in, in our relationships and in our sex life? Of course it should. How can it not? We've got to stop treating lust like it's a bad thing. We've got to start channeling it towards the person that we're supposed to be lusting after. And that's been our issue. Is we, why am I on this? I mean, really, sometimes you're just there. And you've got to talk about it. It's for someone, I think. Hey, let me tell you, those moments right there, this stuff right here is the stuff you get walked up to afterwards and people say, that's what I needed. The whole stuff was good, but that was the 30 seconds I needed. That's life-changing. It, we cultivate relationships in play. Okay, you do that on the playground, you do that in community, you can, do that, you can even do that in the bedroom. I don't want to get, you don't need me to get more than that, but I will say this. Let me go back to lust for a second. Listen, if you, look, I mean, I'm very serious about this. If you, if you treat your spouse as if they are so holy they cannot be lusted after, your lust will come out. All right? And it's ungodly to treat your spouse that way. Well, there's a holy, I, I don't think of it that way. Then you don't understand the purpose of play. You don't understand the purpose you were brought together. It was not just to love one another, it was to like one another. It was an intimacy that gets translated kiss in the New Testament from time to time. Agape doesn't get translated kiss. Phileo does. Because you don't go around kissing the enemy that you love. You kiss with intimacy. That's why Judas regretted what happened to Jesus. Because the kiss was real. It was a true affection. Misguided cell of Jesus, yes. But the affection was real. He really did like him. And the fact that they were going to kill him is why he brought the silver back into the temple. To go, that wasn't the deal. You weren't supposed to kill him. You were supposed to talk to him. Why? Because I think if you talk to the guy I like, you'd like him. See that? And so there's that closeness, there's that intimacy, there's that pull. Lust is an awful snake. It'll bite you and it's poison, but it doesn't have to be because God put that in you. It's only an awful and biting poison when it's directed outside of the one God gave you to spend your life with. And it happens even in marriages that are supposed to be holy and healthy because we're not directing true unbridled lust at the person that God gave us. And we ought to be. We ought to be cultivating that daily. Working towards that daily. You have to say these things. You always run the risk of people walking out feeling like, well, I messed up because I didn't do that. We ha- That's okay. You can't back off from saying it because we know somebody might not have been able to do it. It's not about being able to do. It's about growing from where we are into the places we grow. Now, now, now listen, I, I'm, I'm trying to bring this home. I'm trying to land the plane. Where else would we find this? Seven churches in Asia in the book of Revelation. I don't know how long I've been going. I promise I'm almost finished. If I can get to this, we'll be done, okay? Seven churches in the book of Revelation. They're phenomenal discourse between Jesus and his church. And there are some amazing new covenant concepts, and there are some things that have really stressed us out when we read stuff like Laodicea. You're neither hot nor cold, I'll spew you out of my mouth. What's that mean? 
And I think when you start to read it in the full context, you start to understand some stuff about Jesus. Go, go, go with me real quick, and we'll land this at, at Revelation chapter 3. And, and I want to bring this home. Revelation chapter 3, verse 18. I counsel to you to buy from me gold refined in the fire, that, that you may be rich in white garments, that you may be clothed, that the shame of your nakedness may not be revealed, and anoint your eyes with eyesolve, that you may see. As many as I phileo, I rebuke and chasten, therefore be zealous and repent. Behold, I stand at the door and knock. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I'll come into him and dine with him and he with me. Did you catch phileo in verse 19? As many as I like, I rebuke and I chasten. Now, the reason I wanted to bring that up is because, see, I, let me just be full. I just want to be raw with you for a second. And I know you think I was just raw, but that's just adults talking about stuff that ought not make adults embarrassed. But this next one's a little tough for us because we live in a culture that so downplays discipline, personal discipline, discipline in our kids, and et cetera, et cetera. And we live in a grace culture that totally downplays discipline. You ever bring up the discipline of God, people think you're about to get legalistic. And I think that's because we've misunderstood the discipline of God. God's discipline is for those that he likes. You ought to be excited about that. It means he likes you. Did you hear that? Let me explain to you. This is what I mean by raw. I love your kids, but I may not like them. I don't know them. It would actually cheapen it if I told you I like your kids. That's stupid. How am I going to like your kids? I don't even know your kids. Do I love them? Sure. I don't want anything bad to happen to them. Absolutely. Do I want them to know the love of God? Absolutely. Do I like them? That's not fair. We've never met. So if it comes down to taking care of mine or taking care of yours, which one am I going to pick? That's a no-brainer. I'm going to pick mine. Why? Well, they're mine. But, what, but that, that doesn't mean anything. What, what do I really mean? I like them. And I want to raise them in a way that I keep liking them. Stay with me. I told you I was going to get raw for a second, right? I want, to, I want them, not, not that I'll stop loving them, not truly that I'll stop liking them, but I don't want their actions to, in front of you to be actions that I go, oh, gosh, I wish you wouldn't have done that. What's my kid thinking? So how do I keep that from happening? What's Proverbs 13 say? He who spares the rod, what? No, it doesn't. I knew, I knew, I set you up. Because we've all quoted he who spares the rod spoils the child. What we did was we cleaned that up. It actually says he who spares the rod hates his kid. What's the next line? The very next line. I know we didn't even read any further, did we? He who spares the rod hates his kid. He who loves his kid disciplines him early. But he didn't use the word in the Hebrew for love. Guess what word they used? Liked. He who spares the rod hates his kid. He who likes his kid disciplines him early. Why does he discipline him early? Because he likes him. If he didn't like him, he wouldn't discipline him early. Because if he didn't like him, he'd let him go out and make a fool out of himself. Don't downplay the discipline of God. Discipline of God is not smack, smack, smack. Discipline of God is instruction towards performance that looks like who you are. Not instruction towards performance to be somebody else. You don't need to. You're already the righteousness of God in Christ. It's instruction that leads to the performance that lives up to who you are. So if I say to my son, here's how I'd like for you to act when you meet Pastor Justin. This is what I'd like for you to say. Why am I doing that? Because I want you to live up to the performance of who I know you are because you got it in you. 
It's there. I know who you are. I want him to see that. I'd love for him to see that out of you. Now, I don't, have, I don't walk around saying things like that. We don't have to say things like that if we go early into the lifestyle of the people we actually like and treat them the way we like them. I think our, I love my kids too much to tell them what to do is actually a form of sparing the rod and hating our kid. And the reason that I think that, and this is the last sermon I get to do at Pure Grace, so... The reason I think that is because what happens when we don't put the discipline that is needed, and I don't mean beating the fire out of someone until they bleed. I mean instruction that leads to people living the way that they were born to live. When we don't do that and we say it's because I love them, I want them to be free to express, what we've actually done is create people we don't like. Because we, we couldn't stand that kid if he belonged to somebody else. Right? So if that kid was somebody else's kid, we'd go, you know what I'd do with that kid? (laughs) Here's the reality. Most of us wouldn't do that with that kid. Because we didn't do it with ours. Well, my kid wouldn't have done that. But your kid did a bunch of other stuff. And whenever you were told about it, you said, not my Sally. She wouldn't say that. She wouldn't do that. And some of us, yeah, Sally did. Let me show you what else Sally did. Let me give you some. I lay that out there before you because I want you to see Jesus takes the motif that was very common to Jew. Spare the rod, hate your son. Love him, discipline him early. Jesus takes it and hands it to Laodicea. And he says to them, because I like you. Where have you guys heard that word before? Proverbs 13, when you've been raising your kids. Because I like you, I rebuke you and I chasten you. Therefore, repent. What's repent? Change your mindset. Change your mind about me. I discipline you because I like you. And you know what my discipline will lead to? I stand at the door of your heart and I knock. You and I are so close to conversation. And I've disciplined you so that you and I can carry on a conversation. You know what some of the beautiful parts about conversation is? Silence. This is why your prayer life really shouldn't just be quiet time in the morning. It ought to be all day long because God doesn't mind the silent moments. And so God's not saying, you know, why haven't you been talking to me lately, Justin? No. No. Father doesn't say that. Have you ever noticed that? Not, never had the Lord. I have never in my own prayer life had the Lord come to me and say, Paul, it's been a long time since you and I talk. Because it's an ongoing conversation between two people that like one another. And two people that like one another can go stretches of long, long stretches and not have to say words out loud because they know one another's presence. That's my wife and I. That's most of you and your spouse. We go long, long stretches and not say anything, still have a great time. How is that possible? Because you're with the person that you don't just love. You're with the person that you like. And because you're there, you can have with silence. You can fill those moments with memories instead of having to fill those moments with words. I'm here to tell you, God doesn't just love you. God likes you. Does God like all the stuff you've been doing? I don't know. I don't know what you've been doing. But I do know he loves you. I do know he loves hanging around you. Say, well, pastor, what, what, what things might I ought not do? Well, that's a good word to have with the Holy Spirit. And I promise you, if you'll talk to the Holy Spirit, he'll be telling you those things. You're not going to have to do them to be righteous. You're out of that mode. I think we've graduated in the Grace Church. I think we finally graduated to where you can hear a message on some of the stuff that's in your life. And you go, oh, I, didn't, I thought I was God's righteousness. You've moved past that. You are God's righteousness. You can just keep stepping forward. But there's some stuff you know it. What? How do you know? Here's your litmus test. I promise. I told you 10 minutes ago I was going to say this and shut up. So now I'm going to try to tell the truth. 
I'm going to say this and then I might not shut up, but I'm going to really try to shut up. <laughs> you, you can tell whenever the actions that you do create chaos in your life. They are actions you need to stop doing. Well, that was rocket science. I know. It's really simple. It's why we don't need people getting up, thou shalt not commit adultery. The reality is, is you know that if you do, there's so much chaos, you can't even sleep at night. There's so much chaos. There's chaos in your body, in your mind, in your home, in your job, in your checkbook. There's, there's chaos with your friends. There's chaos. You don't, it's, your life's one big chaos. Do you need to go ask the Lord if you shouldn't keep doing that? You don't even need to go to a law church to hear it was wrong. You know when the chaos shows up, something's not right. God likes you. It's not about every day going to the Lord going, do my actions, do you like all of my actions? Big moments of silence. You're with the one you like. It's okay. The disturbed waters will show you something needs to change. This is why peace is your umpire, not prosperity. Okay? Because you can prosper in the middle of foolishness and stupidity. Sinners do it all the time. That's why don't ever live your life trying to be happy. Happy is cheap. Happy is an emotion. You can buy it. Yes, you can buy it. Enough money, you can buy happiness. You can't buy joy, and you can't buy peace, and you can't buy meaning. You can be so rich you don't know what to do with all of your money and have no meaning and you put a gun in your mouth and blow your brains out because there's no meaning to even getting out of bed. So it's not about happiness. Peace is our umpire. When peace rattles, it's the Holy Spirit. All right, I've went long enough. Father, I thank you for this room. I thank you for what you've said. I thank you for what you're doing. Where it was prattling on, Father, help them forget that where it was inspired of the Holy Spirit, sink that down into their heart and like fertile soil and like a good seed. I thank you that you like us. You like us. I know you don't always like what we do and that's why you tell us to stop doing it because you discipline those you love and you do it right early. Father, that's the person I want to be. I want to be that man. That's the man I want to be to Natasha. That's the husband I want to be to her. That's the man I want to be in front of your children. It's the dad I want to be to Lucas and Lauren. And I think that's all of your sheep's prayer. I really do. Even when we come in and go out, we still come in and find rest. We go out and find pasture. We're yours. I thank you and I praise you in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen.